0: Hello and welcome back to our spin-off show, another 10 questions. Today we're joined by former advertising copywriter turned social commentator turned novelist Jane Caro. It's impossible not to feel wiser after a conversation with Jane. If you suffer anxiety or insecurity or just want to turn your life around, then listen in. I first came across Jane on what used to be the Gruen Transfer, then invited her to be on Agony and was immediately engaged by her clear thinking and the effortless way she gets her message across. Here, she talks about the days when being a feminist wasn't cool, how to freak out someone who's shouting at you, and the wisdom she was taught the morning after her daughter nearly died. But I start our chat by asking Jane how her co-workers would describe her.
1: People think, who don't know me, that I must be very difficult. Because (laughs) a woman with an opinion is clearly very difficult you know it could not be possible that they were amenable but actually I'm not particularly difficult to work with um I've co-authored books very very happily you know without any fights or any difficulties and I when I did have colleagues and co-workers when I worked in ad agencies well you know most of the people that were my art directors when I was a writer and you work in a team in a ad agency are my friends now so I presume they you know say reasonably nice things about me um That's
2: generally
1: nice. yeah generally I think I enjoy collaborating I enjoy like I, as I was just telling you before i just finished a novel and um you know I've I love the editing process I actually really like mm. the feedback that comes from an editor even if it's as it often is, you know, there's a lot more work to be done, and there are things that aren't right and aren't working. And you know, editors are very skilled at t- telling you that um, without annihilating you. But even so, I really do enjoy uh, getting advice, getting help, uh, listening to other people's ideas. And um, you know, I'm 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 never I never mind whose idea it is. I always just want the end result to be really good. Um, and if the other person has a better idea than me, then that's fine. You know, let's go with that one. Uh, I, I long ago gave up the idea that everything I did I had to be the star of. Mm. I, I remember when I first started appearing on television, you know, say The Gruen or something, I just used to think to myself, i just go on, I'll be myself and I'll say what I think. I'm not trying to be the cleverest. I'm not trying to be the funniest. I'm not trying to be the most outrageous. I'm just trying to be me, as much mm. me as I can be. And I've kind of kept doing that. And, of course, there are people who don't like me. I mean, that's fair enough. Um, nobody has to like me. But I think it makes you fairly Ill- easy to deal with because you're not in that uh, bizarre narcissistic competition as really? to who's, who's the winner. Yeah. Um, it's more about being part of producing whatever it is that you're trying to produce to the best possible standard that you as a group can manage. So that's the way I've tried to approach things. I think you've
0: hit on something there, the, the notion that if you're being honest and yourself, that you are going to be easy to deal with because there's no, there, there's none of that anxiety of lying there. You know, that if you're kind of putting on a character or you're not actually representing yourself truthfully, then you're probably going to be a little bit on edge.
1: Yeah, and I think um, second-guessing is always a waste of time. If you spend your time, like, you know, I I make speeches for a living, or I did before COVID, and people often say to me, aren't you afraid of standing up in front of an audience? You know, because so many people are terrified Mm. of making a speech and I'm not at all. Um, And I said, no, because I know what I can control and what I can't. I can control what I say Mm. um, and I can control... um, the way I come across, you know, the, the things that I do, my gestures, the way I speak, um, and the ideas that I put forward, how the audience responds to it is entirely up to them. Hmm. That's within their control. I can't control that. Hmm. Um, so I don't I don't workshop things. I don't try to second guess what an audience might like. I think what do I want to say? Obviously, I like to find out who's in the audience, like, you know, what sort of people and what they're interested in, and I try to think of things that will have some relevance, but I'm not trying to please them or tell them what I think they want to hear or challenge them um, or any of that nonsense. I'm just trying to say what I think as honestly as I can and leaving their responses up to them. And that seems to work quite well too. And it takes the fear away because Mm. I always think to myself, I'm only ever talking to an audience of one. Um, I'm not talking to a multi-hydro-headed monster of, you know, 200 or 1000 people, depending on how many people are in the audience, because that's when people get themselves all twisted up. And I think that idea of second guessing and trying to be what other people want you to be, and trying to control the response to your work, whether it's a speech or an ad or a novel or a comedy show or a podcast, um, is what gets us into trouble, because then we stop being ourselves.
2: Mm. um,
1: And we stop authentically expressing our own thoughts and opinions um, and start to try and please other people. And, you know, you're going to get shit on you anyway, whatever you do, certainly if you're an out and proud mm. feminist in today's um, world, you definitely will. Well, you may as well get shat on for your own mistakes. As for <laughs> other people's, you know, that's much worse. So um, yeah. it does free you up a lot and I think it does make you relatively easy to deal with because people... you you know, they know what they're going to get with you. Um, And you're not, you don't have another agenda, which you're not talking about. Because the thing I always found hardest when I was working, you know, in offices and for other people was when you were told on a project that this is the agenda and then as you worked on it, you discovered, oh, no, 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 that was the politically acceptable agenda, but it's not actually the real agenda. The real yeah. agenda is something no one's actually talking about. And it's your job to find out what it is. Those were the worst jobs. They were the hardest things to do.
0: I bet. Um, so that leads into question two. What's what's the most unhelpful feedback you've received?
1: <laughs> There's been so much.
0: <laughs> um
1: well, the first was when my mother told me never to learn to type. <sighs> she meant it very well. She um she was a secretary. Uh, she should have been an, an historian, but she was born in 1931 and that wasn't really seen as an option for
2: mm. smart
1: young girls, in you know, back then. So she ended up as a secretary in an office and when she had her daughters and was always a feminist, my mother from very, like from as long as I can remember, and she would always say to us, whatever you do, don't learn to type because if you learn to type, that's what men will make you do. They'll make you type their things. And I think for her generation that was... um probably excellent advice. For mine, it Mm. turned out to be an absolute disaster. Nobody types for me. I'm an absolutely dreadful, you know, two or three finger typist (laughs) to this day. So that was a bad piece of advice. But um, another one was when a boss of mine, who was a lovely guy, this is in advertising, he was a lovely man, but his feedback was, you know what, Jane, you're really quite talented. This is when I was working as a copywriter. Now, I didn't say for a woman, but it was kind of unspoken because there were <laughs> a lot of us. You're really quite talented. And if you just drop all this feminist stuff, you could really go quite far.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And I said to him, this would be in the 90s, I'd say, and I said to him, you know what, I can't drop the feminist stuff even if I wanted to because... That's the point of why I'm trying to get ahead. You know, like that's what that's what I'm doing it for. That's what drives me on. And why it was such bad advice is now I look at a lot of the men that, you know, I was competing with back in advertising agency creative departments in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. And um, most of them now, you know, we're in our 60s, my peers and I, are eking out a living, you know, doing a bit of freelance work if they're lucky. Mm. And um, I'm on the telly and doing this podcast with you, Adam, and writing books. And why? Because I'm a feminist. Yeah. Feminism that saved me. So that was really a really bad piece of advice. And I'm really, really glad I didn't take it. I wish I'd learned to type as well.
0: I've interviewed you a bunch over the years. And I think probably the first time was maybe 2013. Mm. And things have changed so dramatically since then. All those, you know, all those men with their, with their opinions dated almost overnight. Did you find that or was it just always a slow moving beast?
1: No, I found it exactly as you describe it. And it's made me think that we never know what the next thing is that's going to happen because we're actually not very good at seeing the, 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 the needle, if you like, move. It, mm. it can feel like nothing's happening. And I spend like quite a lot of my time talking to people like, oh, you know, I've been fighting for whatever, like public education um, and things like that, and I feel like it's useless and hopeless, climate change is the same. You know, there's a lot of causes that people put an enormous amount of energy and effort and everything into, and they get very disheartened because they feel like mm. nothing's changing. And I say to them, well, I've been a feminist for, you know, as long as I can remember and for most of those decades, it felt like very little was changing and everything that did change came with such effort and was so exhausting to push through. But now it's just gone exactly as you said. It's like we reached this tipping point and boom. And I do put a lot of that down to the Hash Me Too mm. moment in 2017 when I, because what I think happened then was that so many millions of women suddenly spoke about things They'd never told anyone and that the scales fell from our eyes in that what we did was we looked at one another and said, what, you too? Like this happened to everyone? It didn't just happen to me? I didn't just do something? It wasn't something about me that made that guy do that to me? It was something about just I was a woman and it happens to almost every woman who's ever been born and ever lived. This is outrageous. And so we suddenly realised how comprehensively we'd been conned And I don't think we're ever going back to being conned like that again. And that really proved what feminism had been arguing for, let's say, 300 years. Um, And so it went from being, I mean, it's really interesting with the books I'm writing now. I first wrote a book with Feminist in the title in, um, I think, about 2009 and hardly sold. And in those days, um, Feminist in the title was The Kiss of Death, according to publishers. Now they're all desperate to put feminists in the title because it sells like, you know, bucket loads.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah. So, and it's women who are hungry to find out more. It's like they've been released from this idea that I think they always on some level kind of thought was a bit dodgy, but they thought they were the only person who thought it was a bit dodgy. And when you think you're the only person who thinks like that, you think, well, I'm probably wrong. You know, if everyone else thinks differently, then it's probably me that's wrong. But I think that's gone. Now women realise that they're not the only people who think like that or that that happened to. And so um, that gives you an enormous sense of uh, confidence. Yes, this is real. I didn't make this up. It's almost like there was like... um, centuries of gaslighting exactly (laughs) i was just thinking that yeah
0: it's occurring
1: to every woman in the world and they've suddenly recognized it for what it is and i think Mm. this has happened because of so many women plugging away for so long even though it felt almost hopeless and Mm. the message i keep trying to send is it's never hopeless every bit you do adds to every bit everybody else has done you know and though it feels hopeless it never is Something fundamental will change if you keep going.
0: How do you feel about the factions within feminism from from different perspectives of of different generations?
1: I ignore them, basically. I don't get caught up in them. Um, I don't like factions much on the left at all. I I dislike seeing, you know, I, I watch the fights on Twitter about trans women and radical feminists and I watch them about Choice feminism and liberal feminism, and um, I watch them about a lot of other things too. It's not simply feminism; it's a whole lot of things. Mm. And I watch them fight, and I just have one thought: wrong enemy, wrong enemy.
2: Y- yeah, yeah, fighting
1: the wrong people. These are not your enemy. You may have differences of opinion. You may think, you know, that something somebody said is wrong, or the way they do it. But they're not your enemy. They're not mm-hmm. the ones holding you back. And of course, it suits the powerful enormously to watch those with little power fighting one another. That's the Mm. best outcome for them. So I will not get involved in those fights. I will not. uh, Terminology is not a big deal to me. I'm always thinking about what's the intent. If someone uses language badly but their intent is good, I will forgive them. If someone uses language beautifully but their intent is bad, I will not forgive them. So, you know, I just think we get caught up in things that we And I understand why, because it's a lot less scary to fight people who are as powerless as you are. It's much easier to fight laterally and to do Uh, lateral damage than it is to fight those who really have power, because those who really have power, as a lot of people, a lot of women at the moment have discovered to their detriment, we've got defamation actions flying all over the place, Um, those who really have power, they can hurt you, they can damage you. That's the Mm. really scary fight. But that's the only fight worth, ha- worth having if, if what you want to do is redistribute power more fairly. Um, so I ignore it all. Um, the only I'll accept anyone as a feminist uh, who claims to be one, mm-hmm. just as I'll accept anyone as a woman who um, identifies as a woman. I accept you at your summation of yourself. I believe that's the fundamental of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the only people I won't accept as feminists who say they are feminists are those who oppose reproductive rights. Mm. I don't mind if they're against abortion for themselves, that's entirely their right, but if they want to change legislation to stop women, other women having abortions because they or their God thinks it's wrong, they're not feminists. Mm. Uh, that is the one line that I think you can't be a feminist and want other women to... to um, make their bodily uh, autonomy l- lower than yours mm. or conform to your view of what women should do with their body. I, I think that's the lo- only line I would draw. Otherwise, if you're a conservative feminist, I don't may not agree with your conservatism, but I'm certainly happy to accept you as someone who believes in um, equality for women.
0: That really resonated with me when you said it's so easy to, to fight laterally as mm. opposed to actually fighting up. There's so many examples of that where people just like you know, similar beliefs turning on each other.
1: It's it's depressing when it happens. It's almost inevitable. Um, I don't necessarily judge the people who do it because you know we all get frustrated, we get angry, um, and we lash out when we shouldn't. Families are the places where much fighting and damage happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I, and I do, but I do like the saying. I think it was Catherine Devaney who used to say it that. The right eat other people's children. The left eat their own.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's the
1: truth to that. We're <laughs> idealistic and sometimes that idealism uh, can morph into a kind of uh, didactic um, insistence on everybody saying using the same language yes. or, you know, having. And, I, I, yeah, that sort of thing I'm not, I don't get engaged with.
0: Um, mm, they argue the angles and the minutiae. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, what is the failure you most cherish?
1: Oh, what a very good question. What a very good question. I probably, well, I think it's all my failures I cherish actually mm. because it's when I failed that I learnt I I, lo- I mean, obviously I like success less as much as anyone else does and, you know, I enjoy uh, people being flattering and saying nice things and, of course, I do. I'm, I'm not without ego and vanity and all that kind of stuff. But if I think back over it, every single failure, painful, and some of them have mm. been excruciatingly painful as they were, that's when I was more alive. That's when I was more... Uh, aware of things and more open to learning new ways of doing and being and growing. Mm. When I'm successful, sometimes I feel like I'm floating through life a bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not actually, it's the tough times where you feel that you're really living. Um, But I'd say, oh, I make lots of failures. I say stupid things. Um, Often I tweet when I shouldn't. (laughs) um yeah exactly but sometimes i think that's why people quite like me too i think you're always controlled and perfect that's worse um well anyway i would say that because it couldn't possibly be that so that's my rationalization um but the probably the biggest failure i had was when i was fired when i was four months pregnant i'd managed as a young copywriter in the 80s to um and women copywriters were very rare at that time um I, and I only got in because of nepotism because at the time that I was trying to get a job, my father was a, um, he had control of the largest advertising budget in Australia as a client. So oh. <laughs> it was pretty easy for me to get a job. Um, and I managed to get eventually a job in a creative department thanks to oh. Bryce Courtney amongst others. That yeah. Of, yeah, wow. it was nice of him. He encouraged my talent, what, well, what he saw as a nascent talent, which was good of him. And um, I, I managed to get ahead and to win some awards. And it was always hard because as a female copywriter then, I was very quickly aware that I was always seen as a risky investment. They weren't sure that women could cut it. You know, there just was this basic prejudice. Oh, I think it still exists. I still think we... we, My view of things is white, straight, and particularly private school-educated men are assumed to have talent until they prove otherwise. Mm. No one else is assumed to have talent. They are assumed not to have talent until they prove otherwise. So there's we're in the negative trying to prove ourselves. They're in the positive. And that's why so many nongs get ahead because they're given credit just for looking and sounding right.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and that you know we see that all the time. So I had to battle with that, but I got myself into the hottest agency as a young creative in the hottest agency in um Australia at the time. Copy a writer a middleweight writer at Campaign Palace. Ah, and I uh, they paired me up with another woman, terrific, talented, lovely woman. But the two of us were in a sort of hot, cold sweat all the time, trying to prove that we deserved the job and um. After about two and a half years, I was uh, four months pregnant they lost a major account and they fired both of us and that was pretty devastating because, um, I mean, you get fired all the time in advertising. It's not as big a stigma, stigma as it is in um, other forms of business or then. Now, of course, everyone gets fired all the time, but yeah, yeah, in the 80s it was a little bit less likely to happen. But I couldn't get another job and I was really out of the business for about five years and I really did feel as if, I'd failed and that um, I'd never get back into um, writing. Mm. And I was at home with small children and I got a bit of freelance. So I couldn't just be a, I, I mean, I love my children, but being a mother is, let me not be honest with you, it's drudgery, really. So I retrained at that point. Um, as a uh, relationships counsellor, I did a course at night and uh oh, retrained. Wow. And I got to the end of that course, I, I passed and everything, and I, I could have got a placement with uh, maybe Marriage Guidance or Unifam or one of the um, counselling agencies, but I couldn't fit it in around my parenting duties because my husband got a job where he was travelling all the time, so it just became impossible. So I'm a trained uh, relationships counsellor who's never practised. And maybe that sounds like I wasted my time, but, oh, my God, I have found that training, particularly the counselling training, so learning how to hear what people are saying beneath the words they're saying, you know, how to paraphrase and play back to people to get them to clarify. When I've done interviewing um, on radio or um, in the documentaries that I've made or even running panels, you know, um, for conferences or writers' festivals, that training I got during that period of my life where I felt I was a failure um, has stood me in the most enormous stead. Like I almost wow. see it as one of the most valuable things I ever did. And so that came directly out of when I thought I'd failed. And I did end the. I, I fully intended to go and work um, in counselling, and I thought I'd maybe do a psychology degree or something as well. But I got Offered a job back in copywriting out of the blue when my youngest child started preschool, and um, I took that. Oh and my god, was great too.
0: Yeah. So, so, so is, how long was this course? Was it like a year or something? Couple of
1: years, I think. Couple of years. Yeah. And
0: yeah. and um and so you you essentially hear the subtext of what people are saying, you know.
1: Well, I've been trained to listen. It uh, doesn't mean I always do it, but certainly if I'm in an interview situation, so I'm interviewing somebody, mm. I will always listen for the clues that may not just be the substance of what they say. And I've learned that if I want to get more out of someone, um, instead of saying, can you tell me more about that, it's better to say, uh, so you're saying, and paraphrase, because almost always they'll come back to you saying, well, I'm sort of saying that, but I'm also saying this. And then they, they give you all that lovely stuff
2: Fantastic. that they haven't
1: actually said. And it also enables me, I was trained to put myself in my subject's shoes. So I'm always there with the person I'm interviewing. So, f- like, for example, recently at a writers' festival, well, it was pre the latest COVID lockdown, um, I was asked to interview um um, Tanya Plebiset. she yeah. put together a book of essays about what the world should look like after COVID, and um, I, I've met Tanya quite a few times and everything. But she was, I thought she was quite nervous before we went on, and I can understand that. If you're a politician, it's a different thing than being a writer when you get on stage, even at a writers' festival, even about a book you put together, you know you're always surrounded by enemies, you're mm. always surrounded by people who, and and you live in a world where it's all about, um, you know, scoring a point against the enemy and getting ahead and being smarter, faster, quicker, you know. Mm. And uh, so I think she was nervous. Well, I was pretty sure she was nervous. So I just went into my, you know, make, the person feel comfortable make them feel safe and warm and then your whole job is to simply get them to be themselves and tell you um about what we're talking about and the safer they feel with you the more and more interesting information you will get it's not a trick you're not trying to make them say things they don't want to say or embarrass themselves it's simply a way really building a safe place for that person to feel they're really talking to you and i was trained to do that i mean that's just such an i i'd never know i would never have known how to do that intuitively you know yeah I, yeah it is a skill it's called active listening and um i'm lucky enough to know how to do it when it's appropriate and yeah. um it's just made a big difference lots of people will say to me at the end of oh you handle that so well." i had a Another writers' festival I was at, there was a lovely uh, older man I was interviewing about his memoir, and he got very distressed talking about it. And now a lot of people when an interview subject gets really distressed, panic, mm. and they want to stop the distress. Because I train as a counsellor, I don't panic. I assume that distress is something people can cope with, and if they get distressed, that's okay. Um, it's not my fault. I didn't cause the distress. They they have um, come... Um, they're talking about something that they feel very strongly about and that to sit with them in that distress and not panic about it, not want to shut them down or or gloss over it, because um, all of those are kind of about me, my discomfort, not about how the person who is talking is feeling. Um, and I, I was, you know, it worked very well and the person, the distress was appropriate to what the memory that they were talking about. It was a memoir. Um and the interview went extremely well. And somebody afterwards said to me, Thank you for handling that. So and I said, Well, I sort of cheated because I got trained to do that a long yeah.
0: time yeah oh, That's really great advice.
1: Yeah. And and so it's all it, it it's very simple stuff, but um you have to, you know, it's like anything simple. It, you do need to learn it, you can't mm. just do it. And um, that was such a wonderful experience and um and, and far from being wasted even though I never actually went to work in the field in which I had trained That's brilliant
0: that's brilliant yeah I, I'd love to be able to I, I find myself panicking sometimes I know exactly what you're talking about there uh, when someone's crying during an interview or something I, I want to reach out and make them feel better and you're right it's about it's 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 about me it suddenly becomes about me then it's um, exactly
1: right you want to can't kind of, the first thing you're taught in counseling is, It's never about you and how you're feeling. If you're the counsellor, the interviewer, the facilitator, it's never about you and how you're feeling. It's always about the interviewee and where they're at and you follow them. Mm. Follow them and you stay at their pace and you just speak and ask them. And if they don't, you trust them to you trust their strength and respect their strength Um, because some people think, oh, you know, I could ask them a question that might upset them. No, you'll ask them a question as long as your intent's good, if you're being aggressive and nasty, well, yes, you might. But if you if your intent is good, then if they don't want to answer the question, they will say to you, oh, I don't want to answer that or no, that's not how it was. And that's absolutely fine. You then follow their direction.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, this next question, I mean, it doesn't take into account COVID, but uh, if you could go back five years, what advice would you give yourself? <laughs>
1: Patience, mm. be patient. You never know what's going to happen. Um, and you, you're going to lose a lot of what you had, but you're not going to mind that much, mm. which is not something I would have thought. And partly that's because everybody lost a lot. <laughs> it's not like you yeah, were yeah. Robinson Crusoe. Um, and so I think it's a common experience that people have lost a lot of things they thought they had, income, social life, opportunities, you know, um, yeah. but, but we've all learnt that actually that doesn't kill you. You can survive that and you can remain quite buoyant. I mean, yes, you'll feel disappointed about things and some people have lost a lot more than I have. So um, I'm just speaking from that perspective. Mm. Um, but also that you will then find something else to do that will, you know, um, push you to try things you never would have dreamt of trying. And that would be I wrote the book during COVID and I I don't know that I would have had the courage to do that um, if I was running around doing all the other things I used to do as well. So, yeah, I think I'd say as with anything, most experiences turn out to be better than you thought they'd be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, even, and I didn't know COVID was coming like five years ago, but nevertheless, I would say that. Don't worry. Be patient. Most experiences turn out to be better than you think they're going to be. Most fear, most dread, most anxiety is anticipation.
0: Did you have that that the idea for the book lurking in your head um, pre-COVID?
1: Yes, yes, I'd I'd had the idea and um, I told a couple of people about it and they would encouraged me to find a literary agent, which I did do. Um, But it was only, um, and it was another failure actually that um, pushed me into starting to actually get pen to paper because you can have lots of ideas. It's actually, you know, doing something about them. And um, I'd, I'd written another novel. I first wrote it in 2012. And then I put it aside to do something else. And then I went back to it and rewrote it again. And then my publisher was a young adult novel. My publisher didn't like it and um, basically rejected it. And so that was a big blow and a big Mm -hmm. failure. But I had this other idea in my head and I thought, well, this is the previous novel, this is disappointing, but I'll just go and write this. And so if I hadn't failed at that first novel, I probably... Well, it wasn't my first, but anyway, the previous novel. Um, I probably wouldn't have started this one. And uh, so far it hasn't been published yet, so we haven't had general readers' uh, verdict. But so far the publisher, the editor, the people who've read it all really like it. So, again,
2: Fantastic. out of a
1: failure comes um, something else that uh, probably was a better idea in the first place.
0: I guess this dovetails into the next question. What about your job keeps you awake at night?
1: Well, what keeps me awake at night, I think, is the thing that keeps most uh, writers awake, not necessarily. Well, it's certainly with novels, yes, but with shorter form, when you're writing about important issues like education or the cashless debit card or um, uh, whatever it is you talk, you're writing about, is the terrifying fear that you've misquoted or you've got a fact wrong. Mm. Um, or you've misunderstood something and you wake up at two in the morning just before it goes, you know, live the next day and think, oh, shit, I should have checked that quote with so-and-so before I put, oh, shit, you know.
2: Yeah. It's oh, that God. horrible
1: thought. And um, so far it's never actually blown up in my face, but I cannot tell you the number of times I've woken up at two or three in the morning gone "Fuck!" Yeah. I, I ring that person and check that quote for the third time and, you know, what if they get upset about this? And am I sure those numbers are right? You know how terrible you are at mass? You know, that kind <laughs> of thing. <laughs> That's what, it, it, and it's, it's short-term anxiety. It blows. I've, I've often found the worst time ever in 24 hours is 2 to 3 in the morning if you're awake, and things blow up to huge proportions, and then eventually I manage to talk myself down and go back to sleep. When I wake in the morning... <laughs> I think you must have what the fuck was I worrying
0: about that yeah, for? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I, I have had cause to worry. I, I wasn't involved in a story, but I was blamed for a story that went wrong at the Herald Sun, and the headline was Two Dead and Bendigo Siege. Ooh. Only one was dead, and the guy, the other guy who was named as being dead rang to say that he wasn't dead. It's and oh God. and uh, <laughs> they blamed me, but it, it wasn't me. It was someone trying to kind oh. of wriggle out of it. Um, but I had to actually, you know, I was called in front of everyone to, to, to ensure that I wasn't involved in the story. But oh, yeah, to well, death. To
1: it's, death. A, it's hideous. I remember being involved, and it happens all the time. I remember being involved. Fortunately, I wasn't involved in the ad, but it was a, I think it was our agency. I can't remember now. But they showed um, footage that hardly any money to do an ad for Telstra or someone like that about how we help in emergencies, one of those. And they, <laughs> went to stock footage and they got a piece of footage of a girl in a, a flood, you know, very dramatic. Just chopped in with a whole lot of other stuff or edited in. And then it turned out that it was from America and the girl had died. And, oh, my God, the shit hit the fan. People got fired, you know. Oh, it was a nightmare. And this poor editor and creative team, they've just been trying to do their best with, you know, three dollars fifty. Yeah. And I felt sorry for them, but I, you know, and that and those slip ups can happen. You know, people aren't perfect. Things mm. when you're frantic, they get through to the keeper, and you sold footage in good and you buy it in good faith, thinking it's up yeah. fine, and then it turns out not to be. And so, yes, I mean, I wake up in a cold sweat about things like that sometimes, and I get very comforted when I read. Um, Journalists and writers who I admire saying something similar. I think, oh, thank God. I'm not the only one. Yeah,
0: you're in a public industry. Mm. Um, what's what's an obstacle you ha- you've had to overcome?
1: Oh, being a woman. Um yeah, being a woman primarily. I often think, what would my career have been like if I'd been born a boy? I think it would have been very different. I think I would have mm. earned a lot more money. I yeah. think I would have Uh, risen a lot higher in the advertising industry um and that's but that's not something I regret actually I also don't think I would have ended up with the kind of bizarre kind of career that I've had over the last 15 years which I've loved so it was a big barrier um it was difficult to overcome and I also but I think it also gave me opportunities. And that that's almost always what barriers do. They people I know who got a totally smooth ride from an early age, and perhaps that's what would have happened to me as a white, uh, straight privileged man, had that been yeah. what I was, I would have had a smooth ride. That can be really difficult when things go downhill because you don't actually know how to cope with that. You've never had problems. Whereas I think for other people you're always overcoming barriers and in the end it's that that leads you into doing something you never thought you would be able to do and perhaps gives you the grit and to some extent the desperation to give it a go. Um, So
0: So you left advertising, in. did you leave advertising in 2006?
1: I think so, yeah, it was 2006. And it was because lovely um, Adam Boland at Sunrise I was working yeah. in an agency I, I hated. It was the only agency I went to for the money, and I should uh-huh. never have done it, never go. Never take a job for the money. There's a reason they have to pay you so much to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hated it. It was a miserable. I called it the sad place, and my daughters remember that. And I got. Wow. Adam, I used to appear on Sunrise occasionally making comments about things, and Adam Boland rang me up and said, um, I want you to analyse the news for me every morning on Sunrise. I said, oh, oh, are you going to pay me? Because they'd never paid me before. And they yes, Jane, because I'm going to pay you. I said, oh, okay. And it was very little money and in comparison to the money I'd been earning at the agency. It was a ridiculous amount. But it was only for like three hours in the morning from 4.30 to 7 in, in the morning. And I said to my husband, I've been offered this opportunity and um, I think I should take it, but the money shit. He went, that's okay, we can manage. So um, I took it. And I freelanced and stuff. And it only lasted three months. I wasn't very good at it. They also wouldn't give me my head. They wouldn't let me analyse the news right. the way I wanted to. But they kept making me do it the way they wanted to and uh, those things never work. So yeah. um, it only lasted three months and then he fired me, um, which was sad but not that bad, actually. <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know what? I don't want to go back in agency. I'm going to see what I can do. And so yeah. I just started seeing what I could do, and um turned out there was quite a lot of opportunities out there.
0: That's great. Um, was Gruen, what, what year are we talking about when you actually made a, your appearance Yeah, Gruen? Gruen?
1: was Gruen was a couple of years later, I think, maybe a few years later. Right. Because I kept, while they were, because what they were doing was they were auditioning lots of people in the industry and they were looking for women because there weren't very many. And I kept getting... People saying to me, um, I've put, given your name to Andrew Denton for this new show and advertising, you know, they'll get in touch with you. And they never did. And people said, Oh, we should get in touch with him. But I'd made a little commitment when I decided to take that chance and just go out there and see what was there. I, I said to myself, I'm not going to um, pester people for work. Um, I'm, people can find me fairly easily if they want me. Um, I'm just going to sit and wait. I'm not going to go out there being pushy you know I didn't want to do that
2: mm.
1: I um and so I just said no I'm not going to contact them if they want me they can find me and finally I remember I got a phone call from um, John Casimir mm. and uh he said what are you doing and I said well I'm writing opinion pieces and I, I think I'd written a couple of books by then and you know um appearing on sunrise and doing this that, and the next thing and I said but um He said, yes, are you doing anything in advertising? I said, oh, yeah, I still do the occasional bit of freelance. And at that time I was lecturing um, in advertising creative. I was running the elective advertising creative in the communication arts degree at the University of Western Sydney. So that was the one kind of permanent job I had. It was only two days a week, but that's what I was doing. And he went, oh, great. He said, that's that's enough. He said, "Uh, come in and do a workshop. So I came in and did a workshop and they cast me in the show and I was in the first episode. And, right. um, yeah. you know, it, it went on for quite a few years, but they sacked me in the end. Um, most, I think it's partly because I wasn't really in advertising at all anymore and they wanted, I gave up the lecturing.
2: Yeah, you're um,
1: right. And, but I, you know, I was also getting on, you know, there's a, there, is a, there is a problem. Women, there's never a sweet spot for women. You're always the wrong age. So <laughs> when you're young, when you're young, you're seen as, um, well, first of all, you don't know anything because you're young, and second of all, you could get pregnant any minute, that would be a problem. Then when you have had kids, well, of course, you're a pain in the neck because you're a parent you've got children, and, yeah. you know, that's a complication. And then when you get to menopause and you're finally old, you know, you've you, you you graduated from being a life support system for other human beings, and you're full of energy and you've got, all this experiences. oh you're too old. Uh, you're too old. Yeah. No one wants an old batch. <laughs> so you this there's never a right age for a woman. You're always the wrong age. It doesn't matter what age you are, you're the wrong age. So I think that was part of it too. And um, I am I did I I didn't mourn losing the analysing newspapers at sunrise very much. I did mourn losing Blue and I really enjoyed it. I still can't bring myself to watch it, isn't that funny? Yeah. I just can't bear to watch it. Uh.
0: I was upset about that too because I enjoyed watching you on on Gruen. But we got your Nagini. <laughs> you, did,
1: you did, and that was lovely. I really enjoyed that. That was very fun. And you gave me a lovely, lovely opportunity to speak about education and I really enjoyed.
0: Oh, yeah, you were great. Does paying for your child's education ensure a better academic performance?
1: No, we know it doesn't. We absolutely have all the facts. We know it doesn't. There is no correlation between who owns the school, this is across the world, no correlation between who owns the schools and the kinds of marks you're going to get, none whatsoever. I was a bit horrified at how the rest of the panellists talked about it.
0: Except Dave O'Neill.
1: Yeah, except Dave O'Neill. I sometimes despair. Otherwise intelligent people do not understand about education at all and why it matters that every child gets
0: yeah, yeah.
1: An opportunity regardless of who their parents are. The same opportunity, as same as you know, we can possibly do. We, we we have just
0: don't seem to get it at all. Yeah, we have gone backwards a significant way since <laughs> Goth. Um Jesus,
1: it's like we only went forwards for a minute. That's right.
0: <laughs> um, what's the word or phrase you most overuse?
1: My husband just said um <laughs> <laughs> Yes, probably that. Um, <laughs> absolutely, I say a lot at the moment. That drives people crazy. Absolutely. I and a lot yes, of people good. are doing that. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, you know, I don't know that there's a lot of phrases that I'm aware of saying, but I, I, I do agree. Um, While well, I catch my... Uh, thoughts. Isn't it interesting? And when you're writing
0: a book, did you notice that? Did you, did you notice that you might overuse a phrase in, in the book?
1: Oh, there, yeah, there were a couple that the editor brought up and said that I shouldn't, <clears throat> if I could make sure I, I cut some of those out. Uh, one of them was rolling your eyes. <laughs> so I'd have them rolling their eyes a lot. Um, but it's not a phrase I would use. That was describing what people do. I do roll my eyes a lot. <laughs> so I'm not sure if we can count that. Uh, one of them, she, you know, she said, you've got your characters rolling their eyes all over the place. So I had to um, eliminate a lot of those. And um, I'd kept describing the villain of the piece as charming. Ah. So I may use charm, warmth, <laughs> the words that are important to me uh, yeah. too much. And I I have terrible habits of using uh, worse as the beginning of a sentence, <laughs> um, you know, I pile on the misery. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you remain calm under pressure?
1: Yes. It's interesting. I, I don't think I was very good at that when I was young, but I've become much better at it as I get older. And I think maybe that is one of the things older people do get better at. Mm. Um, I think part of it is listening hard to, because I usually find I'm under pressure when I'm in a situation where there's aggression, so it might be a panel or an argument or a, you know, um, a discussion, something like on the drum or something like that where someone's being, um, you know, quite aggressive. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of things, um, I've just found that I sit and I listen quite carefully. I learned a trick, and that helps me hold my face, and it helps me. Uh, formulate my response. One of the things that does also help me when I'm under pressure and say, for example, on Twitter, if I'm involved in something there and people are having a go, um, is I long ago recognised that when people are nasty to me and they particularly if they don't know me, then that has nothing to do with me. That's all about them. And I don't mind someone honestly disagreeing with me that's perfectly fine of course you can disagree with me as if i know what's everything i don't but when you go into personal attack and abuse um i i find that actually quite easy to deal with because as soon as that happens i think well they haven't got any they haven't got any facts they've only got they'll have to play me because they haven't got a good case yeah yeah so that's easy and um i've also learned and i do give this advice to women online quite a lot I've also learned that bullies, the way bullies work, is they want to control your emotional reaction. So they want to make you feel humiliated, afraid, hurt, ashamed. You know, they want, they want to evoke a negative reaction in whoever it is they're bullying. Yes. And what you must not do, you might feel those response, those feelings, but what you must not do is let them see that. Mm-hmm. Don't ever let them see that. So you, you, because that's what they want, so don't give them what they want. And I think when I'm under pressure for whatever reason, I think to myself, don't give whoever's the piling the pressure on what they want, and remember, you have the power to accept or reject this pressure. Um, I know this is a ridiculous thing to quote from, you know, some people would quote from the Bible or Shakespeare, but no, I'm -hmm. going to quote from Labyrinth, the film with David Bowie as The Goblin. Yes. Uh, Where at the very end she unlocks the spell and gets her baby brother back when she says, you have no power over me. And that really resonated with me because I think for a very long time in my youth I gave my power away. Women it's very common in young women. We seek approval. We're constantly seeking to make sure that we're acceptable, we're approved of. And that's because we live in a dangerous world where just by being female, we're not approved of. Mm. So we have to go around and men have powers, so we have to keep them sweet because otherwise
2: yeah, yeah. they're very dangerous.
1: So we spend a lot of our time giving our power away and trying to please others and trying to get approval. And very slowly I learned I'm not the sort of woman that's going to be approved of by a lot of people. So I have to stop seeking it and I have to stop giving my power away. And so under pressure, I will often remind myself that I have the power.
0: Did your life change when you decided that?
1: Oh, yeah, very much so. Totally. I had an anxiety neurosis for many years as a young woman, really florid, quite, you know, I've written a book about it. um, My memoir is really all about that. And then I had an experience with my eldest daughter when um, she was born prematurely and caught Um, RSV positive bronchiolitis, a respiratory disease you cannot vaccinate against. Oh, wow. Any any anti-vaxxers out there? (laughs) My baby daughter would not have nearly died. She stopped breathing in my arms three times. Had to be um, rushed into intensive care, resuscitated, rushed into intensive care. It was extremely um, terrifying. But by that time, because of the anxiety neurosis and the fact that I'd sought treatment for it, I had developed the habit and the, and the confidence that if I needed help, I asked for it. And so I reached out and I was lucky enough to get, be put in contact with this amazing um, neonatologist who was also a grief counselor. He was a grief counselor because he'd lost a child of his own um, who came and talked to me the morning after, you know, she'd stopped breathing and I was sure she was going to die. And um, she didn't just to comfort everyone at this point. (laughs) Um, And uh, he came to see me and he said these incredible three sentences to me basically that changed my whole view of the world for the rest of my life and that have stood me in good stead ever since. And they were, there's nothing special about you and there's nothing special about Polly, my daughter. Terrible things can happen and they can happen to anyone. Safety is an illusion. Danger is reality. Anti-vaxxers yearn safety predictability Um, they believe that if they're a good enough person and they eat enough kale they'll never get sick and die this is all fantasy i learned this it is fantasy let it go let it go you're in danger all the time that is the reality of life Yeah. yeah the weird thing about that was once i accepted that and stopped trying to control everything stopped trying to control the things i couldn't control Uh, everything got better. My anxiety neurosis basically dissipated and eventually disappeared altogether. Um, And I became able to go and try all sorts of things and do all sorts of things because I kept thinking, well, you know, maybe I'll fail, maybe I'll be humiliated, maybe it'll be awful, but who cares? That could happen anyway. I might as well give it a burl. (laughs) Um, And things like if I was on a plane, I stopped doing the magical thinking about, you know, oh, if I, if I only do this or that or the next thing, um, then this plane won't crash. I went, oh, this plane could crash. But it's not my job to keep it in the air and I can't anyway. I'm not the pilot. I'm yeah. just a passenger. I'm just going to sit here. And if it starts to plummet, I'll worry about it then. But up until then, I'm going to enjoy the the wine, the food, and the, uh, you know, entertainment. <laughs> and so far, so good. Um, it And that's when I learned that most fear and dread and anxiety is anticipation. It's you anticipating disaster, when disaster actually strikes, it's funny, you can cope with it. It's the anticipation of disaster. When you haven't got anything to cope with, the fear of the disaster, that totally fucks you up.
2: Mm. And
1: if you let go, I'm always saying to my daughters, in fact, this is the word I overuse. My daughters would definitely say this. They would say, oh, this is mum's. Don't anticipate Whenever they're telling me about, oh, I'm going to fail this exam, I'm going to do this, this is going to happen, I'm not going to get this job or blah, 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 whatever it is, I just said, don't anticipate. Just go for it. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't.
0: That's great. you, you, you don't anticipate. You did mention before something about a trick uh, about having like when you're on television and there's an argument going on and you, you don't oh, yeah. reveal your face. and
1: Well, it was it was a trick I, I learned again because I was uh, ticked off about doing something wrong when I was first on Sunrise and they used to have the monitor, as you would know for being on television, mm-hmm. particularly live television, they always have a monitor where you can see yourself. Well, when you're first on television, it's a bit hard to look away from it. So <laughs> I, I got into trouble probably from Adam Boland for looking at the monitor. Don't look at the monitor. And I thought, how the bloody hell am I not going to look at the monitor? And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll look at whoever's speaking. So I just developed this habit of whoever was talking, I just fixed my eyes on them and and didn't move my eyes and really paid attention to them or just kept my face on them. And many years later, somebody said to me, you know, I don't always agree with what you say on television, but you know what impresses me? I love the way you really listen. Mm. actually all i was trying to do was avoid looking at the monitor but it paid (laughs) off well
0: that's right (laughs) it's an acting trick too by the way
1: exactly exactly and also it works when someone's giving you a hard time you just look at them very very um if they're talking and you just look at them um unflinchingly uh and they will find that quite confronting if you're Mm -hmm. looking at them quietly not pulling a face or anything while they're having a go at you. And it also enables you to hold on to your own power. I am not reacting to this. I am not getting upset. I am not uh, going to allow you to do what you want to do, which is to make me get defensive or flustered or aggressive in response. I'm not going to do any of those things, which doesn't mean I never will. Sometimes I fail. But that's okay as well.
0: That's great advice. Um Career high and career low for you?
1: Oh, career high. There's been a few. I suppose really the career high, a silly and sort of vain of me to say this, was when I won the Walkley in 2018 for women's leadership in the media. That's that true. was a real career high. Yeah. I, I really did never expect it to win a, a Walkley. I mean, I've won advertising awards I'd never expected to win a Walkley. I didn't, I've didn't. i never called myself a journalist. Like I don't think of myself as a journalist. I'm not trained as a journalist. Um, I, I think of myself, I call myself a social commentator and a writer, which I think is different from a journalist. Though I have done um, some journalistic style articles and I enjoy doing them, but I'm not a trained journalist. And um, so when the, I won that Walkley, I really did feel like I'd been accepted um, in a profession Mm. that I've always admired very much and also I was extremely delighted to win it for women's leadership because I suppose that I I, I didn't necessarily aim to be a leader of women, I didn't do that, but I did aim to do whatever I could to um, advance the cause of women Um, and in the area in which I have some skill, which is words and so that was really a, a, a career highlight can i ask um, was it
0: based on a bunch of opinion pieces you'd you'd done or yeah, yeah. Uh, which ones were they
1: oh christ i can't remember oh. i'd have to go back and look at um, right okay but it's like three entry. or four <laughs> <were they>? yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it was uh, and, and written in between 2017 and 2018 um i think one was for the saturday paper where i looked at um Hillary Clinton at that time, because it was 27, 2018, and she'd lost the election mm. to Trump. And I was so infuriated by the lock her up um, yeah. chance. And I then I sort of investigated how many female leaders of countries had been accused of corruption, jailed for corruption, or lost their job for corruption. And I found that out of like only 10% of countries in the last 50 years have had a female leader. That means ninety percent of not, um, and of that tiny number of female leaders, fully one quarter, twenty five percent, been accused of corruption, jailed for corruption, or lost the leadership because of accusations of corruption. Sure, and me. I yeah. thought to myself, how can this be true? Um, even Julia Gillard, do you remember yeah, there was yeah. all those ac- accusations about the slush fund yeah. later? And I wrote a piece looking at all these women and, the, and I'm, I wasn't saying none of them were corrupt, but what I was saying is, is it really true that a quarter of this tiny number of women? And my uh, conclusion was that we see women who seek power in their own right as intrinsically suspicious. We're suspicious mm. of that. Hillary Clinton had a 69% approval rating when she was Obama's Secretary of State people loved her as a 2IC. We loved female. Julia Gillard, most popular person in Parliament when she was the 2IC, Kevin Rudd. But as soon as women put their hand up for the top job, we hate them. We hate them.
2: It's interesting. We
1: think there's something deeply wrong with them, and so any accusation will stick. We're prepared to think that they are corrupt, that they are venal, that they are evil, wicked. It's a very, very ancient trope of the wicked which I do remember that was one of them. And I was very proud of that piece and I hadn't seen anyone else do it.
0: Oh, no, sounds great. That you know, was for the Saturday paper. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that sounds, that, that's, that's, it's, it's great to actually reveal it on, you know, on those terms. Um, mm. And career low.
1: Well, it probably was that time I got fired from the palace. That was pretty confronting. <laughs> oh no, actually, I think my career low was probably the first two or three years out of university when I had a whole bunch of shit-kicker jobs in marketing departments and advertising agencies that I was uniformly shit-ass at. Like, and I'm not being modest. I was shit-ass at them. I, you know, I just, I couldn't understand the language that was being used in advertising. It was heavily technical. And I can remember feeling very much, I was a sort of junior, 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 and I was working for this quite emotionally um. It's a stable bloke and he would say things to me like, can you go and ask Peter, the production manager, about the herny hern for the hern bit? That's what it sounded like to me. And I would try to remember that and I would go to Peter and I'd say, um, Stephen wants to know about the hernicaluschnerd for the sublurge nerd. And he'd say, but what about the gliggle? What about the gliggle? I haven't got the gliggle. And so I'd go back to Peter and say, he says, he hasn't got the gliggle and he hasn't got, can't do it without the gliggle. No, he's got the, the Oh, he's got the, you know. And I just, everyone would yell at me. I didn't know what they were talking about, and I was useless. I, I and I was depressed, and I was bored, and I was miserable, and I hated it. And that would be pretty much my first three years. And then you work. found
0: writing after that, though. And, and
1: then uh, I found writing, yeah. and it was so hard to get into. But in a way, again, again, it's really interesting you asking these questions because. That low, that desperation, that feeling if I don't find something I really want to do, I'm going to just give up and have babies and work in a sandwich shop, um, was what made me desperate enough to keep knocking on doors to try and get a copy, a junior copywriter's job, even though there were no women practically anywhere in that. I just kept knocking on doors until I got someone to give me a chance and eventually I did. But it was the the, the desperate desire to get out of those shit house jobs that I was knew I was not cut out for that admin is not my thing Mm. I'm no good at it um that that gave me the motivation to get the job that eventually I did turn out to have some ability to do so it's funny isn't it the low is almost always I it's um, it's
0: it's a familiar story to to me that that when you're a writer you're not really (laughs) you're not really good at other stuff It's, it's so interesting I
1: now say to people if they want me to be on boards and things I say look I'll do it, but I'm no good at the admin. I can't read a profit and loss sheet. I can't do any of that. Mm. I'll be helpful on the marketing, the people side, and if you give me a job to do, I'll do it. But I'm no good at the the tick-the-boxes governance. Mm. I'm no good at it. Just be warned.
0: I'll probably say the wrong thing in a public forum. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, there's no doubt. Uh, you just have to live with that. Um, That's right. Some people like that.
0: Um, final question, do you have a motto?
1: Don't anticipate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it probably is actually something along the lines of, it's those three lines. Yeah. There's nothing special about you. There's nothing special. Terrible things can happen. They can happen to anyone. Safety is an illusion. Danger is reality. It's that. It's that that I go back to. Time after time, if I'm feeling terrible, I feel cheated or I haven't got what I thought I should get, I go back to those three lines. What makes you so special? Why should things go well for you? They don't necessarily for anyone. Just, you know, stop being self-indulgent and do the next thing. Um,
0: I love it because it just it deletes ego from the equation. It's great.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I've got a healthy ego, but I do think I get, I get myself back together when I get, Ego out of the equation. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, same, same. It's it's actually a relief to get it get rid of it sometimes. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. It's a relief to and to recognize. I think to where you stop and the rest of the world begins, Mm -hmm. which is what that tells you. It says, you know, you're just. I keep saying to people, you know, we're 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 clinging to a rock that's hurtling through space, and the only way off is to die. Mm. That is the reality of life. And Geo wishes. The anti-vaxxers would realise that because they are becoming uh, putty in the hands of the most dangerous people on this planet at the moment, the far right. Yeah. And they are letting, by desperately wanting control, desperately wanting the illusion of safety, Yeah. they're actually putting not just themselves but everybody else in terrible danger.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to 10 Questions. If you'd like to subscribe to us on Patreon, we're at 10 Questions with Adam Zwa, and that's where you can get the bonus content on every interview. Until next time, thanks for joining us.